So we're going to be jumping around. So if you're trying to follow in your Bible today, it's going to be a little difficult because we're going to be hopping around all four Gospels at one different time. But today we're continuing our series in Jesus Walks that will end after Easter. And it's Jesus Walks and is Tried. As you're going to see as we go through these, these passages, the trial of Jesus is extraordinarily unjust, but it, just, it is what it is. Okay, so he's going to go technically have five different trials in this section as we go through. So he's going to appear first before Annas, who was the old high priest. He was Caiaphas's father-in-law. Caiaphas is the current high priest. Imagine if that was your name, going through school, right, Caiaphas? He's the current high priest. Then he's going to be sent from Caiaphas to Pilate. Pilate is the, uh, is the Roman governor of the area. So he's the one who actually has the ability to, to, to offer a capital punishment penalty. No one else can. The Jewish people, Annas and Caiaphas, aren't allowed to actually kill anybody through their justice system, okay? So that, it's just Pilate who has to do that. Then Herod would be like your Jewish, he's supposed to be the Jewish governor of the area, but he wasn't a very good Jewish person. And his heritage was kind of, um, was mixed, and so Jewish people didn't really prefer to have him as a representative, but it is what it is, he's there. And then Jesus is sent back to Pilate for the final issue uh, of the, the, the judgment of crucifixion, which can only happen through, through Pilate. So we're going to begin as Jesus is going to be arrested, and he makes his way to Annas's, and actually to Caiaphas's is where he's going to go here. So it says, they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So they brought all kinds of witnesses in who aren't actually witnesses. They're people that they've just gathered up and told them what to say. The problem with doing that is when people don't know what they're supposed to say, they often contradict themselves or each other, and that's what happens. So right here at Caiaphas' house, at the high priest's house, this, this whole case should be thrown out. Because any time in the Jewish courts that people, your eyewitnesses, disagree or contradict one another, the case is closed, it's done and over with. But as we've already seen, as Mark, the gospel writer, tells us, that the Sanhedrin, that the high priest, that all, those, all the, the Jewish authorities have already decided that Jesus is guilty. Right? So this is just a show. Right? This is the dog and pony show. This is, all this is is going through the motions. They've already decided he's guilty. They've already decided that they, that, that they want him dead. Okay, so the truth doesn't really matter in this instance, right? If you've already made up your mind before you've ever made a decision, before you weighed the evidence, then it, it, th- th- this part is just going through the motions. And that's all this is. And so as we read through this, you're going to get frustrated at what you hear and see because our idea of justice is much different, right? Now, our justice system isn't perfect, but our justice system is probably one of the best in the world and one of the best the world's ever known. It doesn't always get it right. By no means does that. And we certainly have corruption in people who go their own way, and do their own thing. But as you look at the ancient world nearly 2,000 years ago, what you're going to see as you read through this is it, it's, a, it's a show, right? It's absolute disaster from what you and I believe justice should be. Okay, so this section, the Sanhedrin, those who have gathered there. Now remember that all the Pharisees, Sadducees, all the people who make up the Sanhedrin, not all of them are present in this situation because many of them are pre- preparing for Passover. And what likely happened is when they send the invitations out for this trial against Jesus, anybody who is sympathetic towards Jesus didn't get an invitation, right? If you're going to weigh and persuade the courts, you're going to make sure that anyone who 
who you might think might say, hey, this isn't right, and what you're doing to Jesus isn't good, you're going to make sure they stay home. And you're only going to gather those who are going to agree with you and go along with you. And that's most likely what's happened here in Mark. And the story continues. It says, And some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Now Jesus said that, like that, similar to that, right? What's, what was Jesus talking about when he talked about that temple? He's talking about himself, right? He's talking about himself, how, how this, his temple, he himself will be destroyed, and three days later he's going to come back to life. Now they took it as the temple itself, right? Now the temple took decades and decades to build. And so Jesus isn't saying, hey, I'm going to tear this thing down and build it back in three days. That's not possible. So they're taking a reference that Jesus spoke about himself, and they're, and they're taking it and trying to make it something that Jesus didn't say. If you ever had your words twisted before, you know how frustrating this is. If anyone's ever taken a little clip of something you've said, and they've twisted it, and they've made it something different, you know how bad this feels when someone takes something that you said and turns it against you. And you didn't mean to say it that way, or you weren't meaning it, and yet they, they make it go that way. And that's exactly what's happening to Jesus here. This is in verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Of course he's silent and gave no answer. If someone brings nonsense in front of you and tells you, Hey, you're going to answer for this nonsense, this stuff that we've made up, you're probably not going to be super excited to answer these people, right? You're going to be like, These guys are morons. I'm not going to do this. And again, the high priest asks him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of of the Blessed One. Now, Jesus can't stay quiet if you actually ask him a question that he can actually answer, right? Jesus is going to tell you the truth whether you like to hear it or not. And Jesus' response is, I am. And you, might, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, when the high priest asks Jesus, are you this Messiah? And he answers, I am. What's he saying? Just in his answer alone, if you remember, I think we looked at it a few weeks ago, back in Exodus, when God appears to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to leave my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, hey, when I go to your people, what name do I give them? And what is God's response to Moses? I am. And when Jesus answers, I am, those that are there to, to prove his guilt know exactly what he's saying. Because look at their response in verse 63. And the high priest tore his clothes which is a real dramatic way of saying I disagree with what you said. It's super dramatic, isn't it? Like, I'm like, dude, relax. No one wants to see that, you know? He <laughs> says, why do you need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Now, Jesus isn't lying. He's telling the truth. And they ask him. He can't lie to him and say, no, I'm not that. And that's who he's claimed to be. And he says, absolutely, I'm that person. And when the chief priest hears it, he knows exactly what Jesus is claiming, right? Jesus' response is, hey, I'm, I'm God in the flesh. I'm sitting right at the right hand of the, the mighty one, coming in the clouds of heaven. They know exactly what Jesus is, is saying. And for them, they don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And so, blasphemy is a charge against him. And if he wasn't who he was, they'd be right. But he is who he says he is. Now we're going to jump to Luke. And pick up and continue the story. And we're going to go through this part a little fast, and then I'll come back and we'll talk through some of the details. So I'm just going to read this next section all in kind of one shot, and then we'll, we'll come back and we'll look at some of the details of it, because there's some pretty interesting details in it. 
It says, but they, then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Remember that whole gift of sarcasm? I tell you I have. This really makes, encourages me when Jesus replies that way, right? That's, like, that's answering the question without answering the question, isn't it? He said, hey, you're the one that said it, not me. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I, have, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Remember, if you bring the case to Pilate, you want one response, and that's you want death. That's what you want if you're bringing this case to Pilate. You want this man crucified. You want him executed. You want him done. And Pilate goes, you guys are arguing over some stupid thing. I don't, it, no, right? That's Pilate's response. I find no basis for a charge against the man. What, what are you doing here? Why are we doing this? But they insisted. And look what they keep doing. They keep lying is what they keep doing. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So you see what's happening here is no one actually wants to deal with Jesus' case because they all know it's, it's silly. It should be thrown out. But remember, there's, there's great tension between the Jewish leadership and Pilate and Herod. And most historians actually believe that, that Pilate himself is on some pretty shaky ground right now. So the person, his ally who was in Rome that gave him this Judea to look after has probably been executed by this point. And so Pilate is on some pretty shaky ground himself. And, and the Jewish leaders know that. And they're going to take advantage of Pilate's situation, we think, based on the history of it, of his vulnerability during this time period. And you're going to see that as we go along. But keep that in mind, that Pilate is, Pilate is trying to appease them as much as he possibly can because he doesn't want any more trouble. Because if it, he, gets, he gets revolt, mixed up in this, He's the one who has to answer for it, right? He's the one who has his heads, literally his heads on the chopping block. So what he's going to do is he goes, huh, I'd rather not deal with this. I'm going to send this guy to Herod. Now, Herod's a joke. If you know anything about Herod, historically, he should have never, the only reason he was in charge of anything is because his dad was a great builder and gave him property and gave him an area to, to govern when he died. But Herod's an absolute joke of a human being and of a ruler. And it's going to, you're going to see that here in, a, in just a second. My little thing's not. There we go. It says, When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him dressing him in an elegant robe, and they sent him back to Pilate. As you can see, going to Herod was fairly well useless because nothing was actually accomplished there because he's, like I told you, I wasn't lying to you, he's a joke. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, 
You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. That's the trial of Jesus. And Pilate ends this section. <coughs> As he brings Jesus before the crowd, Pilate's response to them, or says to them, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now that's the story, and we're going to go back through the story and bring out a few of the details. Now Luke's, this is before Pilate the first time, when they accuse, they're accusing Jesus, they're bringing charges <coughs> against Jesus to Pilate. And notice what they accused Jesus of. Now remember, when, they, when Jesus stood before them, before Caiaphas, they accused Jesus of blasphemy, claiming to be something, God, and, and not being that. But look what they do when they... They bring him before Pilate. They know that if they come before Pilate and say, hey, this guy's committing blasphemy, Pilate could care less. Pilate could care less about their gods and their rules and their regulations and their religion. Pilate doesn't care. So what they do is they make up a different lie. And what do they accuse him of doing here? So we have found this man subverting our nation. Now, now causing rebellion, subverting, now that's something that Pilate's going to pay attention to. And the second one he's going to pay attention to even more because he doesn't get a paycheck if people, enough people start doing this. And what's the, the accusation? He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a king. Now, the Jewish leadership is, is very wise in a, in a bad way. And they know that if they, they tell the truth, Pilate's going to throw this whole thing out. Now, Jesus in the, in the Gospels dealt with paying taxes, if you remember. Dealt with giving the, the, the disciples asked him, because some rabbis said, absolutely not, we're not paying taxes to that Caesar. We're not giving him a dime. And when Jesus was asked about it in the Gospels, you remember his response. He asked them for a coin. And they hand him a coin. And he says, hey, whose picture's on this coin? And they said, well, that's Caesar's picture. And what's he say? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God. So at no point in his recorded ministry in the Gospels has Jesus ever said, hey, don't pay your taxes. Jesus never said this is an absolute fabrication and a complete and total lie. It gets worse before it gets any better. Now, this was the trial before Herod that we just looked at. I told you Herod was an absolute joke. And look what all Herod cares about is there in verse 8, the very, very end of verse 8. He's excited because Jesus is before him. Not so he could learn something, because Herod, trust me, could have learned something. He would have closed his mouth and opened his ears. But he's there. All he's excited for Jesus says in the third line down, center, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. Herod thinks he's the magician. Like Jesus is a stage magician. He's going to perform some great trick for me. He'll entertain me, and then he'll go on his way. I told you the dude's an absolute joke. And if you notice, the only person Jesus doesn't ever talk to is Herod. It tells us that Jesus doesn't say a word. 
And my mom always told me that if you don't have anything nice to say, what do you do, mom? Don't say anything at all. So Jesus is doing. Remember, Herod is the one who killed John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Had him executed during a drunken party. And the lesson is great for all of us. When you're around somebody that you can't stand, because the human being they are, Herod's not a good human being. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You can go read through history if you don't believe me. Sometimes the best thing we can say is nothing. And Jesus says nothing. And they mock him, and they ridicule him. They, say, oh, they make up all kinds of lies about him, and, and Herod wants him to perform miracles in front of him, and Jesus does nothing. Because when you don't respect somebody, when you know that person's an absolute joke and Herod's an absolute joke, sometimes the best thing we do is just don't say anything. Because what you're going to say might not come out right or good. And so, in front of Herod, Jesus is absolutely silent. He says nothing. Now we're back with Pilate here in John 19. And now they're, they're adding on to the accusations. Remember, they've already accused Jesus of some things, now they're going to pile on that. And they say, well, they at least will be a little bit honest this time, right? It says, well, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. That's blasphemy. That's truth. They believe he's committing blasphemy. The, the law is death. Now, notice what they say, though. They don't say because he claimed to be the Messiah, which would be a very Jewish way of talking about it. What do they say? He claimed to be the Son of God. Now, if you know your Roman history, you know that at this time period, starting probably with Alexander the Great, who was before Jesus, the Caesars claimed to be the Son of God. When Julius Caesar died, they believed a comet was him ascending to heaven. And so if Jesus claims to be the Son of God, who is he opposing? Who is he going head to head with? Who is he saying he's king and this other person isn't king? Well, it's Caesar. You notice what verse 8 says. When Pilate heard this, that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, which he is, that's true, Pilate is even more afraid. He's afraid because he has a decision he actually has to make now. Because now the accusations are actually getting to something where he can do something with. And Pilate's getting nervous. Jump back to Matthew. It's still in front of Pilate. So when Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. See, Pilate's being warned, hey, Pilate, even from his wife, saying, hey, I had this dream, this dream wasn't right. Now, if you eat lots of spicy food and go to bed, you might have some weird dreams. That's not the kind of dream that she's having, right? Sometimes, we teach out the scripture that God speaks to people throughout, through dreams. He does, certainly does. Joseph in the Old Testament rises to fame in Egypt because he can interpret people's dreams, right? So dreams certainly can matter. Again, if you ate a bunch of spicy food and went to bed, you have some weird dreams. That is what it is. But when God speaks, sometimes he speaks through dreams. He certainly does. And Pilate's wife has had one of these dreams. And she says, Pilate, get out of this deal. You want no part of this. And notice what she says about Jesus. She's probably the first time she's ever met the man or seen him. And she says he's innocent. And she's right. He is innocent. Matter of fact, he's been innocent his whole life. He's never... Never committed sin. And yet it's going to suffer a whole great deal because of that, that sin. John tells us that Pilate's trying to set him free. He's seen the case. He sees what's been up. And he hears his wife. If you're a smart man, you'll probably listen to your wife. That happy wife, happy life, right? 
And so he says he's trying to keep him, trying to get out of this. And I think the Jewish leaders know that. <coughs> and look what they, how they respond. Look how they start shouting. So if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Now I told you that Pilate's already on shaky ground with Rome and with Caesar. There's been some change in leadership, and he can get himself in trouble in a hurry. And the Jewish leaders, I believe, know that. And they say, hey, if you don't put this man to death, you're not a friend of, not a friend of Caesar. Because he claims to be a king, and we only have one king, supposedly, and that's Caesar. And you notice that when Pilate hears it, he brings him back out again. And this is where he, I think it's almost in a mocking tone to the Jewish leaders, because Pilate knows he's done nothing wrong. And Pilate is a pretty brutal man, if you look through history. So for him to think that Jesus has done nothing wrong, it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal. And Pilate presents Jesus and says to them, here's your king. He is their king, by the way. He is. He's the king. Matter of fact, he's the, he's the king of kings. And their response to that is, take him away. Crucify him. And Pilate, and I don't know if, Pilate, if Pilate's mocking or if he's serious here, he says, are you sure? You sure you want me to, to crucify your king? And notice their response. This part bums me out more than anything. That's what happens when we take our eyes off God and we focus on earthly things as we respond to things like this. Their response is, we have no king but Caesar. These people can't stand Rome and can't stand Caesar and want Caesar to go away and they want freedom. The only reason some of them don't is because they've benefited. They've got a pretty lucrative job. It's the only reason that they wouldn't want to get rid of Caesar is because they're comfortable. And Pilate just gives in finally and hands it over. But I want to pull something from the Old Testament. Remember, these people are, are Old Testament scholars. They know the Old Testament inside and out, backwards and forwards. And in 1 Samuel 12, 12, this is what happens. It says, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, this is God talking, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Remember the Israelites, they asked for a king and God gave them Saul and said, I'm your king, but I guess if I'm not good enough, you can have Saul and David and Solomon. And then the whole history of Israel takes a real spiral after that, if you remember. If you, if so these biblical scholars, if they knew their Jewish history, would know that when the Jewish people took a king, things went south. And here they are, not even, not even wanting their own king, but they're going to take Rome's king as their king. And the entire time it was supposed to be God king. That was the plan from the get-go for the Jewish people, was that God was always going to be their king. But they didn't need a human king, because human kings do evil things. History tells us that. But God doesn't. He's perfect in his ways. And so if there's any king you have, you sure would like God to be that king. And here in this passage, their response is, we have no king but Caesar. What happened to God as king? When God isn't king of our lives, we do stupid stuff like this. And there's no other way around it. I'm not going to lie to you. This, this, is, this whole thing is stupid. It's unjust. It's wrong in lots of different ways. Now, it's necessary because Jesus had to die. You and I know that for our sins. 
But their response to Pilate is, we have no king. But see how you do? You have a king. It's God. He's your king. Always has been. And he always will be. And it's true for us, too. We have a king. Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that your son Jesus suffered so greatly for us. He was willing to sit silently through what can only be called unjust as he was accused of so many things that he didn't do, as he was mocked by Herod and his soldiers, as he was betrayed by those who should have been closest to him. He did that all for us so that we could be brought back into relationship with you. He suffered in his death, but he suffered even before that. As we've seen, Father, as Jesus prayed in the garden, that take that that cup of wrath from him, but he knew he knew he had to drink it. As he stands before these these different men in these different courts, being lied about and accused of things he didn't do, Father, he stood there and took it all for us. So that my sin, so that our sin be forgiven. Father, we read these stories and we're, we're mad. We're angry at what people can do. But Father, we know that 
those people, we can go our own way too. We can do our own thing. And that when we take our eyes off of you, God, all kinds of evil things can happen because by us. So Father, we, we fix our eyes on you today and every day. We look to you for the wisdom that we so desperately need to get through another day here on planet Earth. And we find deep comfort in the fact that you love us. Even though we have gone our own way and done our own thing, you love us still. And that we will never reach the end of your love, your mercy, and your grace. So, Father, as we, as we prepare our hearts and ourselves for Holy Week, as it approaches soon, it will be here before we know it. Father, would you guide us every day to honor you with our words, our deeds, to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. Knowing that we're not perfect, that we're not always going to get things right, God, but that we're just going to give it our best. To chase after you with everything we have. Knowing you're the only one whose arms are safe. God, we love you and we're so thankful for your son Jesus who suffered mightily for us. And it's in his powerful and healing name we pray and all God's people said,